brought to you by Penguin. My reading of it is that maybe she didn't want to spend, you know, the majority of her 20s and 30s pregnant, but, you know, she was illiterate and she is illiterate. And so, you know, because she can't read and write and she doesn't know her, you know, she, she doesn't have that kind of education. I think in a way um, she wasn't allowed any kind of power and authority in her life. Hello, this is the Penguin Podcast. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and today, as always, we're asking a writer to invite us into their world, to reveal their processes, their habits, and their intentions behind the words that appear on the page. Each week, our guest brings with them a selection of objects that have influenced them and their writing, and then we delve a little deeper into why. Today, I'm joined by a Dubai-based American novelist whose debut novel stormed the awards panels in both India, where the novel is set, and around the world, finding a place on the Booker Prize shortlist last year. Girl in White Cotton, or Burnt Sugar, as it's known in the UK, has been described as electrifyingly truthful in its exploration of a mother-daughter relationship and the parts love, guilt, and the onus of responsibility play within that relationship as it matures. Sadly, we'll have to wait until spring 2023 for the publication of her follow-up novel, Protection. But here to tell us all about her processes. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the Penguin podcast, Avni Doshi. Hello, Avni. Hello. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on. It's great to have you on. Um, what were the cultural differences in how Burnt Sugar was received from your own community and then from the wider non-South Asian community? I remember the first reading I did um, in India, actually, which was at the end of 2019. Um, the first reading I did in India, I think there was a lot of kind of horror <laughs> on the part of the audience. I think they couldn't quite maybe wrap their head around this, I guess, what was perceived as a, as a kind of evil mother character. And um, I felt initially that there wasn't that much um, empathy for this idea of maternal ambivalence generally. Uh, I, I don't know if it's that different anywhere else in the world, but I remember the first reading I did in London, pre-pandemic, of course. Uh, it was, so it was January of 2020. and the audience uh, was laughing. There was a lot of laughter. And I think they picked up on a kind of dark humor and discomfort in the novel, but they were, they, they were I think, enjoying it. So that was my first understanding of, of, you know, the fact that there might be a difference in how the book was received. I think generally in the, in the context of South Asia, there's, um, there's a way in which mothers are idealized and deified. And I think that exists elsewhere as well, but it's very particular. It's a kind of deification in South Asia that sort of stands out to me. How difficult was it for you? Because the writing process is difficult as it is, but then to really plumb these darker aspects of a mother-daughter relationship, 
Well, I know how difficult because of how many drafts there were over how many years. Where are those drafts, by the way? Oh, some of them are behind me, actually, in some of the drawers behind me. Uh, I'm in my study right now in Dubai, and I've saved quite a few of them. And then I've actually turned some of them into an artwork. Well, artwork is pushing it. I'm not an artist, so I don't know if you would call it an artwork, but it's in a frame. And it's kind of crumpled up versions of all my drafts, just so I can be faced with all my failures. And it's just a nice reminder that sometimes failures can lead you to something generative or something worthwhile. Um, But uh, it wasn't difficult from the perspective of, you know, thinking of how it would be received, because I didn't really have any idea that it would be received at all. I thought that I was sort of writing for myself. And if one day someone else read it, then that would be fine. But the uh, reception or, you know, the readers were not kind of at the forefront of my mind at all. The difficulty I think really came from, I think, psychologically having to inhabit the character and look at the shadow side of motherhood, look at the shadow side of dealing with family. We're raised with the idea that family is supposed to be something that protects you. And uh, it can actually, in a way, because of these preconceived notions we have about family, it can actually leave you more vulnerable than perhaps anything else. You've described yourself as thinking of yourself as an outsider. Why? I guess I never felt at home anywhere. I grew up in New Jersey and uh, my family, I guess they were kind of black sheep. We were Gujarati Jains, who my parents drank and ate meat. They didn't have those traditional values, I guess, that other Jains have. Jains are, you know, usually very strict vegetarians. There's this kind of extreme uh, nonviolence, at least, you know, at least at the very least, Jains are usually very strict vegetarians. And my parents never kind of fell into that. So I didn't grow up uh, as part of a kind of Indian community. And in fact, I grew up in a what is now a Korea town. It was fascinating, but I, I always felt a kind of difference at, at many levels. Uh, I went to a school that was primarily Jewish, that was predominantly white. And at the same time, I used to spend all of my holidays, you know, we used to travel to India regularly to spend time with the family. And there too, I was a kind of outsider. So I never, even though I spoke the language to some degree, I... I was always known as kind of a foreigner, as a kind of ABCD, as somebody who didn't really always get it. You know, one of the scenes in the novel, the main character's husband, uh, she points out that he breaks his chapatis, his rotis with two hands. And I was, I, I used to do things like that. And it would always um, kind of be an immediate indication to people that I was foreign. And, and I think that idea of being foreign and never quite fitting in, it, it sort of stayed with me. And I continued to move throughout my life, live in different countries. I lived in the UK for a short time. I lived in India in my 20s for about uh, seven years. And I think at some point, instead of this outsider status as feeling oppressive, I started to enjoy it. I think it allowed me a kind of freedom in a lot of ways. Um, it allowed me to remove myself from situations I didn't want to be in. I think it was a crutch sometimes, um, but I think it also gave me this particular perspective that might be 
useful as an author. Are you then naturally nomadic? Are you restless if you stay in a place for too long? I used to be, I think, especially in my 20s. I never wanted to stay in one place after a couple of years living somewhere um, or dating someone. I would <laughs> kind of lose interest and uh, look elsewhere. Um, oh my God, that sounds like there's a trail of broken hearts somewhere in the world in various different parts of the world. No, uh, n- not at all. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, I reached a point, I guess, in my early 30s where I didn't want to keep moving. And I decided that I was going to just stay in one place. And uh, I had been in India for seven years and I moved back to the States. My parents were so happy. You know, they said, finally, she's back and we're just going to keep her here. <laughs> I was on board with that plan as well. And um, and then I met my husband. And before I knew it, I was packing up and getting ready to move to Dubai, which was a kind of shock. It was a culture shock in a way that I think no other place I had lived in had been. And I guess, I guess um, there's a kind of appreciation of the surfaces of things here. And there's an appreciation for a certain... Uh, kind of materialism and <laughs> <laughs> you're being so diplomatic I like the way you put it <laughs> but it's it's actually the way this city is it's it, it leaves these kind of gaps that you can find a way to fill and you can find like-minded people in those gaps so that's been really interesting I think I had such a decided idea of what Dubai was and um now that I've lived here almost six years, I I have a different kind of appreciation for it. Well, how does a place that appreciates the surface of things work for someone who needs to explore the depth of things in order to do what they do? Um, I think it might be a kind of false dichotomy, this, this idea of uh, the surface and the depth being at odds with one another. And I think, you know, it's interesting to kind of hold that tension between those opposites. That can be quite interesting in itself. That might've been one of the issues with the earlier drafts. Maybe I was going too deep into things and not, I I wasn't able to find uh, a way back up to the surface. And I think that's important to be able to go down and and also to be able to find your way back up. Mm, Absolutely, yes. It's important, isn't it, to understand our surface selves, which we project to society, but actually what goes on, what really happens. That's important and that's an important part of the book. I don't know. I think we can be a little, maybe a little pretentious as well in terms of like, I know I I can be a little pretentious as well in terms of thinking I'm incredibly deep and not um, at all interested in the surfaces of things. But I think um, I think there's a lot, especially in the way we relate it, in terms of the relational quality of our lives. Um, a lot of that occurs at that level. Let's go to your first object, Avni, which is a photograph of your grandmother, who I am told inspired certain elements of burnt sugar. Tell us about this photo, which I can see now. Amazing. <laughs> Where is this photo taken? I believe this photo was taken in the 70s in Srinagar in Kashmir, where um, my grandmother and grandfather, mm, they'd gone on a holiday 
And it was a thing to do, I think, at that time to go into like a photo studio and dress up in the local clothing and to take pictures. And so they've taken these pictures and then they must have been touched up with these, speaking of surfaces, with these almost garish colors. I mean, my grandmother never wears this much makeup, but her her cheeks are bright pink and they've clearly added some you know, some kind of lipstick. So there were already, I guess, versions of Photoshopping that were happening at that time. Um, I love this image uh, because there's something about it that doesn't seem quite real. In a way, I think my grandmother almost looks like a film star or something from, a, from an old movie. And it feels as though it's been completely constructed and one of the ways in which, you know, my grandmother's really inspired my writing is, well, first of all, growing up, I used to spend so much time in her house and she was always the most amazing cook. The food and the smells from her home have just inspired me in so many ways and they keep coming up. They come up in the novel in, in various ways. And then also about four or five years ago, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, I had a sense that she was losing her memory for a while, but I think we were all a bit in denial until a doctor suggested that this might be the case. And I was distraught and also determined, you know, that I was going to find a solution, that I was going to find a way to um, save her in some sense. And so I began to dig into the Alzheimer's research. And I was looking at various modalities of research. I was looking at, um, you know, I looked at Chinese medicine, I looked at Ayurveda, and then I looked at functional medicine. And they talked about how Alzheimer's can be, it is perhaps a, a insulin resistance of the brain, that it's like a diabetes type three. And that was really fascinating to me. And I I began to research this thinking that I'm going to use this information to change her life and save her, which was ridiculous, of course. But um, that's sort of how the Alzheimer's piece really entered the novel. It really became a central part of Burnt Sugar. And I had always been very interested in the idea of memory from the time that I worked in the art world. I My background is in art and I um, I worked as a curator for a while. So a lot of the shows that I did, they focused on memory as a kind of center point. And the idea of memory really just took over um, the book in a, in a very intense way. And it really was one of the things that, I guess, propelled the writing, thinking through this idea of memory. And of course, people's memories of each other are different. Their perceptions of of how they were, how you mothered me and how I mothered you. That friction, that tension is incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think we, you know, we use this term gaslighting today, right? And gaslighting is, you know, it's obviously a, a form of abuse and it's a very real thing. But I think if we tone that idea down a little bit. There's a way in which we're kind of always at odds with one another and we're always rewriting each other's uh, ideas of memory. We're always playing with each other's ideas of memory a little bit just by 
just by all having, you know, different subjective experiences. Um, and so I, you know, that's another reason why I just love this image because I, I, I think my grandmother at this point, she doesn't really have a sense of this moment anymore. I don't know if she really remembers it. And then there are other times when she talks about the past like it's more real than the moment that we're in right now. And there's a way in which memory and the past can press up against the present um, that, you know, becomes more and more apparent to me as, as, as she unfortunately uh, continues to degenerate. What do you think of her lives on within you? I sometimes think um, there's an anger that has been passed down. And I think maybe I have an outlet for it through my writing, but I actually don't know if she ever had an outlet for it. And, and so I sometimes think that it might fester in her in a kind of way where she has no ability to release it. What is the source or sources of that anger? I think it's maybe not being able to actively make certain decisions in your own life. I think, you know, she had five daughters and uh, she, you know, we were talking off air about uh, this Asian obsession with sons. Um, I come from a family of that because my grandfather, like many other grandfathers, I'm sure, uh, was desperate to have a son and continued to have daughters. And so five daughters later, uh, I guess they finally gave up. And um, I don't know that my grandmother wanted to have that many children. I mean, I, I'm obviously imagining a lot of the anger and I'm imagining, well, you know, the source of that anger. But um, my reading of it is that maybe she didn't want to spend, you know, the majority of her 20s and 30s pregnant. But, you know, she was illiterate and she is illiterate. And so, you know, because she can't read and write and she doesn't know her you know, she, she doesn't have that kind of education. I think in a way, um, she wasn't allowed any kind of power and authority in her life. It's extraordinary then that in two generations, you know, her granddaughter is nominated for the Booker. That is extraordinary. And I'm sure that that has not passed you by the symbolism of that, of what progress looks like. You are what progress looks like. Yeah, I've actually, um, I've thought about that. I think that's one of the reasons I really wanted to dedicate the book to her in, in a way, because um, I realized the progress, but I realized the kind of sacrifice. Um, I think I often think about a lot of the um, potentials that were stifled. And, uh, you know, so I, I think about the parts of it that seem miraculous, but I I think some of the some of the tragedy of it weighs down on me at times. Does it ever manifest itself, do you think, from older generations in resentment that your generation had choices that our generation didn't? I think that especially has come out around um, the fact that I, that I was compelled to really question this idea of ambivalence in terms of motherhood, I think this idea of maternal ambivalence is very difficult for previous generations to think about because 
you know, one of the things I find fascinating about this idea of ambivalence is that we consider that motherhood is natural, that there's kind of this um, inborn, inbuilt desire to be a mother. But I would argue there is equally an inbuilt desire to question motherhood, to want to exterminate a pregnancy, for example, if, you know, you find that circumstances are not conducive or, you know, there's a scarcity of food or resources, whatever it may be, or, you know, there there are various reasons, but I, I believe that they both are natural feelings. I don't think there's anything unnatural about the decision not to be a mother. And to present that idea to a generation that was never really allowed to question it, where there wasn't even perhaps a language. As I try to look at in the novel, you know, in Tara's case, you were definitely not considered to be a proper Indian woman, right? If you if you were really going to question uh, your role as a mother. So I think that's one angle at where in, in where it can kind of be, it can be disturbing, you know? And I think the most disturbing part is when you've had those thoughts yourself or you or you've you felt, you know, those ideas creeping up and then you've pushed them away for years and years and years. And then to see it on paper, to see it being talked about in a podcast, I mean, that can be disturbing, I'm, I'm sure. Let's move on to your next object, uh, Avni, and it's a book. The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Deutsch, who is a Canadian psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. So why was this object important to you? Um, so I never did an MFA or took uh, writing classes. I kind of was always writing in secret by myself. I studied art history, as I said, and so I was writing from a more academic perspective and I was writing about visual art, but fiction it was something I loved to read, and it was something I loved to write for myself. Um, and I, the first writing class I took was with a woman named Madeline Kent, who developed this technique called sense writing. She still offers um, classes and workshops. And one of the things that I found really interesting about her method was that she brought together these ideas of neuroplasticity. And she realized, she made this connection that the way the brain heals is also the way the brain learns. And she's developed this technique. It's great. It's, it's a series of sequences and ways of moving, and then a series of um, writing exercises that you go through and I see them as a way of accessing the subconscious, of accessing dreams, of accessing memories, things that, that are not readily available to us, but that I think become uh, really powerful when we're trying to excavate a kind of psychological landscape, I suppose, especially when you're writing fiction. So I, I come back to this book again and again. And, and, and of course, for me, I'm, I, I was also looking at it from the perspective of thinking of my grandmother, you know, as, as somebody who has Alzheimer's and how the brain deteriorates. And I'm really convinced that there are so many connections still to be made um, in these various fields and that there's something in creativity and in learning that is deeply healing 
and nurturing and restorative for the brain. Do you believe that you still have time? Again, in some ways, almost lying to yourself that you have time to find out a solution to bring your grandmother back. Yeah, I think I do. I think I'm obsessed with it, like Anthara is in the novel. I think in that way, she and I are very similar. The way she can't, you know, let it go and she has to find a way to understand. In a lot of ways, I think my grandmother's love has been the most unconditional for me. There was nothing I had to give back. There was nothing I had to be. There was nothing, There, it was just pure giving. And um, it devastates me that I can't ever give anything back. And I think in a way, I, I'm hoping that I'll be able to give her this back. Um, so this is, yeah, this is a way I lie to myself. If I could rewind, you know, if there was a way to know that she would suffer this illness, if there had been a way and I could rewind and I could relive my life and become a doctor and find a way to save her, dedicate myself to this kind of research, I guess uh, I, I would probably take take that opportunity. Because I think there's one thing the world needs, and that's another Indian doctor, because there really aren't enough Indian doctors in the world, have me. I mean, there really aren't, are there? I mean, <laughs> uh, let's, uh, let, let's move on to talk about a bag, a brown handbag, a very well-worn handbag. <laughs> it's quite disgusting now, almost. You know, it's got, it's, it's, it's really faded in parts. It seems that there's some oily liquid that's fallen on it at some point. There's some spots. Yeah, it's it's very well worn. I bought this in Manhattan at a very cool, unnamed, you know, downtown boutique. And I bought it years and years and years ago. And this bag has really traveled the world. I don't think many bags have seen as many countries. <laughs> you know, I, I was talking about how I always felt like a bit of an outsider. And there was something about this bag, I don't know, I always felt there was something about it that I loved and that was so beautiful to me, but also so completely nondescript. It just kind of melted in with wherever I was and whatever I was doing. There was something safe about it. I, I felt, you know, even when I might have been in places that, you know, could have potentially been a bit dangerous, you know, walking through the streets of Rio by myself at night. I felt that this bag was kind of safe. No one would um, notice me too much. No one would, well, no one would attack me for sure. Who would want this bag, right? So <laughs> um, there's something about it that just reminds me of that time and the travel and I guess being able to be a kind of chameleon in, in all these places that I visited and all these places that I lived. So I've, I've really taken it, I think, everywhere with me. Does the future scare you in the way that the past gives you solace? Um, I suppose a little bit the unknown of the future scares me. I think especially now that I have children, the future terrifies me. <laughs> Whether it's, you know, thinking about climate change or thinking about where we might be headed politically um, in various parts of the world. So I think definitely there's something about the unknown that scares me. I'm a bit of a control freak, as you may have 
<laughs> as you may well, have that's guessed. Perfect for an, that's perfect for a novelist, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's know? what I say. I'm, I'm terrible at collaborating with anyone because I, uh, I like to be in complete control of my material. So I guess, you know, you have to be a writer then. Um, so yeah, I think, I think I am a little bit afraid of, of the future. But of course, a novelist is a collaboration between you and your editor. So how do you, or how did you first react to that? To the feedback, because of course, Burnt Sugar was written actually, or certainly the first draft um, was written in almost record time, right? In order to make it for a deadline for a prize. But then so began the process of reevaluation with the aid of someone else. How did you first react to that? Um, well, it was it was a big shock to me because I as you said, I wrote that first draft and I submitted it for the prize and then I won. And I was just sure that I was like this genius who could, you know, write a novel in a month and could win a prize. And that had never been done before. And, you know, the world was about to find out what a genius I was. And, and then uh, I had a rude awakening because I started working with an agent after that. And I was stunned. I mean, I had no idea what went into writing a novel. I had no idea what the editing process actually looked like. I thought, you know, when she meant editing, she meant running it through spell check, you know, maybe looking at a few, moving some things around. I had no clue um, that editing was actually in large part rewriting, at least for me. There was a lot of getting used to uh, the idea of um, sharing that kind of power or letting other people have a, have a say and, and have some input. But I think for me, once I trust someone and I know we kind of have a similar vision, then it becomes much easier. Um, let's take a break from the questions now to have a listen to an extract from the audiobook edition of Burnt Sugar, where Anthara is collecting her mother's belongings from her apartment. The inside of her apartment verges on disaster, kept at bay, by the half-hearted attempts Gushtha makes at cleaning, but she, too, knows that her employer is unwell and takes liberties when she can. I wonder how I will love Ma when she is at the end. How will I be able to look after her when the woman I know as my mother is no longer residing in her body, when she no longer has a complete consciousness of who she is and who I am? Will it be possible for me to care for her the way I do now, or will I be negligent? the way we are with children who are not our own, or voiceless animals or the mute, blind and deaf, believing we will get away with it, because decency is something we enact in public, with someone to witness and rate our actions, and if there is no fear of blame, what would the point of it be? That was a reading from Burnt Sugar, written by Avni Doshi and narrated by Vanita Rishi. The audiobook is available to buy now, and there is a link to it in the programme description of this episode. So Avni, your final object, and it's another book, Light Years by James Salter. Mm, yeah. Uh, this book I read for the first time when I did a writing fellowship at the University of East Anglia. And um, another fellow there, she's actually also a brilliant novelist. Um, her name is Charlene Teo. She wrote a, a, a beautiful novel called Ponty. And uh, she was a fellow at the same time. And so she was kind of my savior uh, during my time there because um, 
she was really introducing me to a lot of fiction that I had never encountered before. So she had a beautiful little library set up in her room. And uh, she told me, you know, whenever you want to borrow a book or whenever you want to read anything, help yourself. And one of the first books she recommended to me was, was Light Years by James Salter. And I was so struck by the language, by the characters, by the elegance of the writing. There was like a simplicity and a beauty to, to the book that I just hadn't read anything like it before. And I hadn't even heard of James Salter before. And I realized that I knew nothing about the world of fiction. I knew nothing about publishing. And my time at the University of East Anglia was, it wasn't a very long time, but it was so valuable because I, for the first time I had, um, I felt like I kind of had a community around me of other writers, of people who were passionate about the same thing, about people who I could really learn from. I got to meet Margaret Atwood. I sat in on lectures by Know, authors that I only dreamt of meeting or or uh, hearing speak, and so that was a very very special time for me. How do you think your daughter's life will be positively different to your own? If we think about just two generations ago, your grandmother was illiterate. Now you're in a situation where you write for a living. How do you think your daughter's life will be progressively better than your own? Well, I'm hoping that she'll be able to take certain things for granted. You know, I think um, in terms of being able to follow a dream as uh, unlikely as it might be, you know, I mean, who really dreams, who really imagines that they can write a book or, you know, get published? Or, I mean, these are not things that most people... Uh, consider to be realistic. I know I definitely didn't. You know, for me growing up, creativity was something you did on the side, right? I think, you know, my parents came to the US as immigrants and for them, it was really about making money, um, finding a way to assimilate. But there was also this weight of the culture they had left behind. I think I, I feel some of that weight, but I'm hoping that, you know, my daughter won't feel any of it. I'm hoping that she'll feel quite free. I'm hoping she'll be able to, well, I, I intend very much that she'll be able to tell everyone freely and openly if she never wants to have children, if she never wants to get married, if none of these things are interesting to her at all. You know, I hope she feels equal to her brother in every single way. And so, you know, I, I, these are things I hope for. Um, I'm keenly aware of the fact that sexism still exists and I see it all around me. I see it even in people my own age, you know, who are mothers and, you know, they still treat the boys and girls as different. But I, I'm really hoping that uh, I'm able to make it very clear, you know, to my children that that is not how we live and that's not how it is in our family. Um, so not a doctor then? <laughs> whatever she likes <laughs> finally um avni we like to ask our guests about a recent book that they loved so what is the book that is currently with a bookmark in it next to your bed that you cannot go to sleep without reading at least a few pages of i just finished um an amazing book called 
A Ghost in the Throat. I have actually never read anything like it. It's the story of a mother navigating her identity through having children. It's also the story of her obsession with a kind of historical figure who wrote a poem about her deceased husband. And I'm fascinated by the ways in which so many novelists today are playing with form and what the novel can do. And and this is definitely one book where I feel the author has really pushed the boundaries of of the novel. Um, Avni, thank you so much for hanging out with us today on the Penguin Podcast. Thank you. Uh, And before we go, don't forget to follow the Penguin Podcast, comment, rate, and most of all, share. And you can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. Thank you. Thank you so much. 